of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me this morning. I ask that you please share the show with a friend, give the thumbs up, starters, reviews, all those things. Uh, they all help to get this show out to more people, so I, I really appreciate that. I want to begin this show, uh, like I want to do with every show, with a law of the day. So if you do have a copy of the scriptures with you, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. And the law we cover today will be a, a pretty important one. might take up a good chunk of time, but I think it's going to be uh, one of the more, uh, one of the most important laws I think we can find in the Old Testament. So the law is this. It says this. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So that's Deuteronomy 24, 16. Now, that short law is beautiful for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, the temptation that all humans face is that of vengeance or of one-upping the other person. We see this we see this among children. We see this among just competitors. If one person sins, uh, perhaps they say something not very nice, the uh, offended party wants to get back at them, and maybe it involves some kind of physical attack. Uh, whereas the person before uh, did a verbal attack, the retaliation is a physical one. And then that physical retaliation, the other party uh, decides to go a bit further, and maybe it's serious physical harm or loss of property, perhaps even uh, killing the person outright. But then when that person has been murdered, the offended family, the family of the killed individual, wants revenge. So they also kill the person who did the murder. But then it continues to go back and forth where each family decides to one-up the other one. And eventually you end up with a generational war, if you will, or a, a feud, that a blood feud that goes on for many years. This temptation for vengeance can cross generational lines. And so it can lead to, if it's uncontrolled, complete destruction and death, where a person's children are punished because of the sins of their parents. And such a, such a world is quite horrible, but it was very common in the ancient world for this to happen. And it happened more often with the ruling family. So, for example, when Athaliah, she is in 2 Kings 11, when she usurped the throne of Israel, she had the entire royal family killed, except for one who escaped, Joash, who eventually becomes king. And that's just one example. But the wisdom of the world at the time dictated that children should die for the sins of their parents because the children could grow up to become a threat. So you have a new king or a new royal family. He takes over the throne and he eradicates all the heirs to the throne, all the young children. And the reason he does that is because he's afraid that if he lets them live, they'll grow up to avenge uh, the death of their parents because he probably presumably killed them in order to take over the throne. And so they are a threat. As long as they live, they are a threat. And that is why so often throughout human history, uh, there were purges that were done whenever there was a regime change. Okay, now that's the context that this law is given in. 
those pagan nations did those things, and God is giving them a law that is to be contrary to the pagan nations. Now, there actually is an example of this law being applied and being referenced in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 19 through 20, we see that Joash, so the one who had survived Athaliah's purge and had become king when he grew up, he was apparently assassinated by a group of conspirators. Uh, and this is what it says in 2 Kings 12, 19 through 21. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Silla. It was Josachar, the son of Shemeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. When we look a few chapters later in 2 Kings 14, we see a few interesting things about Amaziah and his reign. Starting in verse 2, it says this. He says, He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall die for his own sin. So we see here that Amaziah did get revenge on those who committed the murder. He put them to death, and, and rightly so. They had murdered the king, his father, and therefore deserved to die. But unlike what would have been common in those days, Amaziah did not kill the children of the murderers. And in that regard, he is trusting. He's trusting that those children are not going to grow up and want to get revenge on Amazia for killing their fathers. Now, of course, their father, you know, their fathers had done murder. Their fathers had been wicked. But the children might not think like that. They might not see it that way. And they might have thought that uh, uh, the assassination of Joash was right. So, either way, Amazia is trusting in the Lord and not punishing children for the sins of their fathers. There's another section of scripture that gives. I think it's honestly perhaps the longest commentary on an Old Testament law that's in the Old Testament. You can find many commentaries of the Old Testament law in other Jewish writings. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, we have an entire chapter dedicated to commentary on this law. So I want to I read that to you now. Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, 
or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress any one, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend it interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose that this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent, and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live.
So we see here that Israel was complaining that their suffering was because of their father's sins. And that's why they had the proverb going around that the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Because if you can imagine that when you eat something sour, it, it makes you grind or grit your teeth. Well, they're basically saying that their situation, where they're currently under judgment, and things are not going very well at the time of Ezekiel. So they are saying that all these problems that they're facing in their land is because they are being punished for the sins of their parents. It's not, it's not their sins that they're being punished for. Their fathers sinned, and now the children have to live with it. Now, the reason they were saying this was to make an excuse from them having to obey God. Because if you think about it, if it's really someone else's fault and not yours, then you don't have any responsibility to do anything about it. You don't have to repent. You don't have to change your ways because you can always say that it was the fault of those who came before you. And God explains in his commentary here in Ezekiel that this is very wicked reasoning. It's an excuse for sinning. And he says, the soul who sins shall die. And essentially, there's no better time to repent than now. And God walks them through essentially three generations of individuals and makes it clear that those who have sinned, they need to repent. And there is no better time than now to stop sinning and to turn away and to turn back to the Lord. Now, is God saying that there are no consequences for sin? That there's no ripple effect? I don't think so. The scripture is very clear that there is a ripple effect. When the parents sin, the children are going to suffer in some regard because of the poor decisions that were made before. But God says that's no excuse for the children not to repent and turn away. They need to. They need to repent. But what's interesting is that several times the people of Israel say that God's ways are not just. And they even ask a rhetorical question. They even say, why shouldn't the sins of the father be given to the children? Why shouldn't the children suffer the sins of the father? So it seems like they want it to be like that. They want it, and probably for two reasons. First, it gives them a reason not to repent. They can always just say that it's not their fault, it's because of those who came before them, so therefore they, ha they don't have any responsibility. And then the second reason is probably for vengeance. They can now punish other generations for the sins of their parents. Now they have an outlet upon which to execute vengeance because... If you are upset about something, if you've been wronged in the past, but the person who wronged you is dead, you can't get them anymore. They either got away with it or whatever, but you can't get them, you can't get them anymore. So what's your outlet for your vengeance, your anger, your desire for quote-unquote justice? Well, you can take it out on their family. You can take it out on their children. So you have a way to excuse yourself from your situation to, to basically blame others, to move the guilt off of yourself and onto those who have died. But you also have a way to transfer the guilt of one person onto their children so that you can punish them. And it's a very wicked and twisted way of justice. Now, there are some modern examples of this happening today. For example, in North Korea, there's a practice of punishing three generations of individuals because of the sins of the parents. 
So when there is a crime against the state, uh, the North Korean government will essentially punish you. So if, if you committed a crime against the government, you would get punished, your children would get punished, and your children's children will get punished. So they take it to three generations. And that practice is happening even today. So that is uh, one example in a communist country. But even in our wonderful United States, the issue is coming up of reparations. And I have to say right now that the idea of reparations, if anyone out there who's listening truly advocates for or is um, sympathetic towards reparations, I would, I would advise you right now, please repent of that, turn away from it, do not go down that path. Because that is nothing more than a complete um, contradiction and abomination in the eyes of God. It is completely contrary to God's law. Quite simply, it is the idea that the plight of African Americans today, they can say that it's not their fault, but it's the fault of those who came before them. It's the fault of slave owners and slave traders. And that the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those slave owners and slave traders need to be punished. Money needs to be taken from them and given to the African-American community today. And that is nothing more than a complete violation of Deuteronomy 24.16. It is punishing the children for the sins of the fathers. And it's wicked. So if anyone is advocating for that policy or that practice in our country today, please don't do it. It is wicked. So, at the end of the day, when it comes to this law, the ability to withhold one's vengeance and to sheathe the sword is a perfect example of wisdom and godliness, even if it means that you put yourself at risk. So, just just like Amazia did. He put himself at risk by not killing the children of his father's assassins, but he did the right thing. So, that's what the purpose of this law is, and we need to see how that law applies Uh, in our world today. With that, I want to move on to our next topic, the main topic, which is that of LexRex, going back to the book study that we're doing. So if you are tuning in for the first time, uh, I'm walking through the book LexRex, which means the law is king, and I'm basically walking through each chapter one by one so that uh, you might find an appreciation for this book for the work that Samuel Rutherford has done, and maybe you'll find it to be interesting and perhaps uh, want to read it yourself. And I encourage you to do so if you have not done it. So we're going to be looking at chapters four and five today, uh, which again take the format of questions that he just answers in, in that chapter. For chapter four, the question is this, are rulers directly from God or also from the people? So he talks about the difference between the office and the individual. So the office or the power of that office is from God, say the office of governor or king. But the king is chosen from among the people. And this is true with regards to whether it's a a governor, a president, a senate, or whatever. It is God that moves the people to select a king or a senator. It is God that causes one ruler to die and another to be born. So in one sense, Government is from the people, because when they come together as a community and they don't have a government, they can choose either an aristocracy, monarchy, or democracy. 
they choose, select, and establish the ruler over them. The power is delegated from the people to the ruler. And this power is always conditional, even if it's not explicit. So the people delegated some power to the king. They didn't give him absolute power. They didn't give him the power to murder them or the power to destroy them or enslave them. The reason why a group of families or a community came together to form a country or a state or a government and establish a king or a senate is to protect them, to protect their property, to provide justice, wisdom, protection from external threats. So the, the power that the government has is always conditional, uh, even, if it's not, even if it's not explicitly said. And the people reserve the right to revoke that power that they gave if they so choose. So Rutherford says that there's nothing inherent in a person to give them a right to rule. And he said this earlier in a couple other chapters, but basically when you look at any community that has no government, there's no inherent right in any person to be the king. That person might be smarter, have more money, have more property, whatever the case may be, but that doesn't mean that they inherently have the right to be king. That right is given to them by the people when they come together and make their decision. Now, Rutherford says that the power of making a person into a king or ruler is from the people. And I know that that sounds contrary to what God says, that the power of the sword is established by God through rulers. But Rutherford gives the example of marriage. He says that a man has the ability to decide to marry one woman instead of another, even though the institution of marriage is created and ordained by God. And I think that is a very helpful analogy because we all know that marriage is ordained by God. It's God who has created marriage, has, has commanded marriage to exist, has ordained it for the functioning of society, but people can choose who they will marry. God does not force you to marry one particular person. Uh, in most cases, he does not tell people who to marry. A man is free to marry an eligible woman, and he can choose one woman instead of another. And in that regard, government is the same way. The people are free to choose one king or another king or a senate or a democracy or a governor or president. It doesn't matter. The people can choose one over another, even though government is ordained and established by God. Rutherford does give examples of Saul and, and King David. In 1 Samuel 11, we see that King Saul was chosen by God but was selected by the people when they came together. Samuel anointed Saul, but then Saul was selected through the casting of lots. And the people in 1 Samuel chapter 10 confirmed the selection of Saul. And then later on, even when David himself is anointed by Samuel, he refuses to, to strike down King Saul, but remains subject to him uh, because Saul had been the Lord's anointed. And we see that King David is anointed as king over Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2, but then he's anointed by the people of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And Samuel had anointed him much earlier in 1 Samuel 16. So the point in all these examples is that there is a covenant that exists between God and the king and the people and between the king and the people. So the people anoint and select and choose their king but also God anoints and selects and chooses the king. And Rutherford gives a, a, a good statement that summarizes the point. He says this, he says, The will of God causes the hearts of the people to be inclined to choose one man over another. 
So even, even in the Republic, we can say that the government is established by God because God is the one who moves a person's heart to vote one way or the other. And so God's sovereignty is what results in a particular governor, king, or legislature, or whatever, even though the people are involved by their choosing. Now, he goes on to say, can the people take back their power in times of emergency? And that is chapter 5. And the answer is yes. The community, when convened in an orderly fashion, and including all civil authorities, has the right and responsibility to choose rulers, set the limitations, and establish specific procedures. He goes on to say that the people do not have the authority to commit suicide or destroy themselves. Now, this goes back to um, what, what he said uh, is delegated to the kings or to the rulers. Basically, he's saying this. He's saying that people are not, they don't have the authority to delegate someone to murder them or destroy them. So, when the people form a government, they're not willingly forming a tyranny. They're not saying, oh, sure, enslave us, destroy us, and murder us. No. Tyranny is from Satan, not from God. God does not grant people the power to oppress themselves. It's kind of like the idea of suicide. Humans do not have the right to commit suicide. Suicide is murder. It's a violation of the sixth commandment. And just because you're the one killing yourself doesn't make it right. You do not have the authority to kill yourself. And in the same way, a society does not have the right to commit national suicide or to give the power of murder to, to someone else. That is not true power. That is an immoral perversion of power, Rutherford says. And he goes on to say, God does not grant a person the power to murder his brother, but at the same time, God does not grant a person the power to just stand by and watch his brother be murdered and do nothing to try to stop it. So, in, in saying these things, he points out that the people, through their lawfully established representatives, can act. They can revoke the power that they delegated to the government. Now, if the people are silent to oppression and tyranny, if they say nothing and make no response and do nothing, well, their silence is basically implicit approval. Now, he goes on to say that since the representatives, such as the elders of the Senate, of the people make and affirm the rulers, those representatives, collectively, they have the right to revoke a ruler when they're gathered together. And he, he mentioned this earlier in his book, but basically he says that the collective authority of the people is higher than the king. The king is higher than any one individual, but the king is not higher than the entire society. Okay, he's a servant. He's under the society. If the Senate or the elders or the nobles come together and choose the king, then even though the king is superior to one noble, to any of the nobles, he's not superior to all of them. Together, they are more superior than him and therefore have the power to revoke his authority when needed. Rutherford makes it clear that this should be done in an emergency situation. The people should not be finicky. He says this, quote, They should no more use their power over any little wrong thing done by the ruler than the ruler should intrude upon the rights of the people for each and every infraction of the law, end quote. So insubordination to a lawful authority is no less rebellious than an armed uprising. And Rutherford makes it clear that if it's a lawful authority, we need to be in subordination to it. And to be insubordinate would be no less rebellious than an armed uprising. But he goes on to say that 
no act of government is irrevocable. And no civilization has the freedom to be completely without government. Yet he makes clear that this specific form of government will vary from culture to culture. This does not mean that God arbitrarily makes some people rulers without the consent of the people. And perhaps the best example of this is that in the Old Testament, God several times asked for Israel's consent, and their consent was required in forming the covenant between them. And we see this between Moses and Israel on Mount Sinai uh, with the initial covenant and the renewal of the covenant. Uh, The fact is, is that God requires the consent of the people, even with him being their specific king. Whether we like it or not, God is ruler over the whole earth. God is king, regardless of whether we exist or not. But the fact is that when God entered into covenant with Israel, when he wanted to become, uh, he wanted to be their God and they would be his people, he formed a covenant with them and it was one in which they consented. And if, if God is going to involve the consent of the people when he is their king, how much more should earthly kings have the consent of the people for them to rule as well? And so the idea here is that all governments which are images of God as ruler. The king is a picture of God in a way. He's God's regent on earth. If, if God is going to function that way with his people, then all kings, all rulers, are to function that way with their people. Consent of the people is what forms a government. So some concluding thoughts on these couple chapters here. Rutherford sees in scripture a beautiful relationship between the ruler and the people. And I think that the analogy of marriage and also the example of the old covenant with God working with the consent of Israel is is very helpful in understanding human government. And even if a covenant is not explicitly said, it's always there. The people can only give or delegate what rightfully belongs to them. They do not have the power to sin or the authority to destroy themselves. So even if a people were to grant absolute power to the ruler, he doesn't have it. He can't receive what they can't give. They are never authorized to give absolute power to anyone. And if they say that he has absolute power and that he uses it to murder them all, that's wrong. It's wrong for them to try to give it, and it's wrong for him to assume that he has it. No government has absolute power, and no people have the authority to give absolute power to a government. And the neat thing about these chapters here, as we see uh, how important this is in the future development and founding of the American Republic, because Rutherford's writings, they were very influential. Uh, Even on John Locke, uh, who himself was raised in a Puritan family. So, but anyways, all of it is useful uh, in understanding how our own country today was founded. Anyways, I hope that you find this Uh, to be useful to you. Again, I encourage you to read Rutherford's book, Lex Rex. It's a very short book, but deep, full of wonderful truths. Um, We covered up to chapter five today, so we'll tackle the next uh, chapter or two next time. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in. If you have any questions, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com or go on Facebook or Twitter and just look for the GBG Podcast. And I would love to answer your questions. Uh, Until next time, take care and bye.